important to take a, take a look at exactly what Jesus said there. Jesus made an incredibly important statement about the scriptures. Notice he says in verse 17, not that your word is true, like it meets some standard for accuracy and truth. It doesn't say that your word is true. It says your word is truth. Your word is the standard. As he's praying to the Father, he's saying, your word, the scriptures, the Bible, your word is the standard for truth, for knowledge. It is truth. Nothing really gives the Christian more confidence and more comfort than the knowing that what is said in this book here is true. And nothing gives non-Christians more fits than hearing stuff from Christians like, the Bible is true. Who are you to say the Bible is true? You Christians are normally pretty nice, but why are you so naive about the Bible? How do you know that the Bible is true? I remember I had a religion professor in junior college, and every single day of class for the whole 15 weeks of the semester was one attack after another for three hours on the scriptures. And I remember I'd been a Christian for a little over two years and I was amped and I was ready to take him on in every single class. I thought I knew what I was talking about. And I, so I made him frustrated. I made my other classmates frustrated because every attack I answered with a counterclaim. And granted, I didn't make any friends in that class really except for one single mom who ended up coming to the church and, and getting involved in our, singles, our single parents ministry. But there was also another, a guy in the class that I, had, that I was friends with in high school. And I remember one day driving to the class and I heard on the radio a 20-minute presentation on why you should trust the Bible. And there was this little acronym and it made sense. So I was like, oh, that's really cool. And so then I get to class, you know, I take on the teacher again. Everyone's looking at me like, oh, shut up. We want to go to break. And so when we went to break, my friend comes over and says, hey, I want to know why did you, why do you trust the Bible? And I was like, I've got this little acronym going and it's going to really be helpful. And so then I gave him this acronym and he was like, oh, I'd never heard that before. That's really helpful. Thank you very much. But it all started with that question, why should I trust the Bible? And maybe you have an uncle, you know, at Thanksgiving or a coworker who's like, why, why do you trust that book? Or maybe it's not somebody external. Maybe it's internal. Maybe it's your own inner skeptic. It's like, why should I trust the Bible? What, what's the big deal about the Bible? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever had someone ask you that question? Why should I trust the Bible? I guess my question for you is, what did you say? What do you say to yourself in that moment? Do I trust it? Oh, I don't know. I just cross my fingers and hope it's true. Or do you actually have some answers to give someone that doesn't make Christianity sound kind of stupid and ridiculous, but actually makes Christianity sound attractive, sound true? If, if Jesus said your word is truth, is there some evidence that backs up that claim? And, and that's what we're going to look at today. My goal today is to help you understand why you should trust the Bible and help you answer anyone, even yourself, who asks you, why should I trust the Bible? Now, most people think Christians just believe because they believe because they believe. It's just like wishful thinking, cross their fingers, hope it's true. But to actually have answers for why you believe is critical, like I said, to making Christianity look attractive. If we're all about the gospel here, we're all about getting the gospel out, one of the first questions you're going to get hit with is, why should I trust that book in your hands? Well, I mean, it's been written over hundreds of years. It's probably been changed thousands of times. How do you know? How can you trust this book? Why do you base your life on this book? And as a Christian, that's what you do, right? 
When we come here every week and we hear a sermon from this book, we don't want to hear Pastor Luke's opinions. We want to hear God. We want him to tell us, how should our lives be different? Why should we change? Well, before you even say, I need to change my life according to this book, you've got to ask the previous question, is this book true? If I'm, going to, if I'm going to alter my life according to it, if I'm going to say no to things it says no to and yes to things it says yes to, especially if some of those no things are kind of fun and some of those yes things are kind of boring, why am I going to do that at all? I'm going to do that only if this book is true. And so you've got to be able to ask, your, to ask yourself, not ask yourself, to answer to yourself or someone who asks you, Why do you think this book is true? So that's what we're going to do this morning. And before we get into that, I've done a couple things. The first thing is I've created this little template here that matches your notes in that little bulletin so that you can kind of follow along and notice five reasons to trust the Bible, five numbers on the left-hand side to help you follow along and get the big picture. Now, I'm going to hit you with a lot of information here. It's going to be like trying to take a drink out of a fire hose. And the goal is to overwhelm you, though, because I want you to see that it is overwhelmingly true that the Bible can be trusted. And so we're going to hit, I don't know, maybe two dozen scriptures. We've got like 60 slides to get through. There's a lot here. We go through it quickly, but I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. I want you to feel like, oh, I've got to write all this stuff down. You don't have to write all this stuff down. We're actually going to post this on the city. We're going to put this PowerPoint on the city so that you can go through it and, and study it more deeply if you want. But my goal is to, is to create the impression for you with all of the evidence you're going to see on this screen that you can trust the Bible. Does that make sense? You with me? So don't get lost in the details. We're going we're gonna to blaze through it to help you understand that you can trust the Bible. So the first reason you should trust the Bible is Jesus' high view of Scripture. Now there are a lot of things that skeptics say, oh, well those things never happened in the Old Testament. That stuff's just bunk. Well notice what Jesus says, notice what Jesus affirms happened in the Old Testament. First, you've got Adam and Eve lived, and their son Abel lived, Noah lived, the flood happened. So people say, you don't really believe in Adam and Eve, do you? Well, Jesus did. He also believed that Abraham lived, that he commanded circumcision, God through him. Isaac and Jacob lived, Sodom and Gomorrah were real cities, not make-believe like Narnia, and that they existed and they were destroyed. Lot and his wife existed, she was judged. These were things Jesus affirmed more so. Moses lived, he was the giver of the law, that actual miraculous manna fell and fed the people. Moses lifted up this serpent. Miraculously, people looked at it and were healed. David lived. He was a psalm writer. Solomon lived. He had great wealth. The prophets Elisha and Elisha lived. Jonah lived, was in the belly of a big fish for three days while preaching in Nineveh. The whole city repented. These are all things that Jesus affirms, okay? Those are some things, especially Jonah at the top, Adam and Eve, or bottom, Adam and Eve at the top, that skeptics go, you don't really believe that fairy tale, do you? Well, guess what? Jesus did. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on Jesus' side in any argument. So those are some implicit things that that Jesus affirms about the Old Testament, saying it's historically accurate. But now notice what Jesus says about the Bible specifically. Notice what he says here in Matthew chapter 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice what Jesus says about the Bible, that the words of the scripture come from God. That's a huge statement. 
saying that the book that you have in your hands, the source of this book, is not a bunch of guys sitting around going, we've got some really religious ideas, let's like chant our, our, our mantras and then put them down on, word, on paper and then give this to everybody, saying, no, this is not the musings of the best religious writers ever, this, is, this came from God. Next. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That word iota is, the, is, the, is a word that, that, that refers to the, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The smallest little letter, it's just a little, a little you know, just the movement of the pen. It says that's not going to pass away. And then that word dot is an interesting word. There's a, there's a line as you, as you write your letters that differentiates an, an O from a C, right? So you have a C. If you want to write an O, you need to add another little line. Well, the name of that little line, or if you have a P, the difference between a P and an R is just a little line. Well, there's a word for that little line that differentiates letters, and that's that word dot right there. He's saying not only is the smallest letter not going to pass away, but the differentiation between letters, that's not even going to pass away. So what Jesus is saying here is that the word here is letter perfect. Inspiration is not, you know, that God wrote the Bible. It's not just in general. It's down to the very letters in our Bible, according to Jesus. Next, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them, talking, this is about God, that he created Adam and Eve, he created them from the beginning, he made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, if you were to compare Matthew 19.5 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Genesis 2.24, which is what he's quoting, doesn't say, and God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. It doesn't say, and God said. It just, it's just stated there in, in Genesis 2.24. But according to Jesus, when Jesus read that passage, he understood, actually, God is speaking when he said that. That again, what is Jesus' view of the Bible? His view of the Bible is that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The next passage, Matthew 22. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you were wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He's debating the religious leaders in there. And he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, it was said to you by God. So again, here's further evidence showing Jesus' very high view of the Bible, that what is written in this book according to Jesus was the voice of God. Next, one more passage, two more. Jesus said to them, how is it that when David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, again, what are we seeing here? We're seeing that when somebody wrote the Bible according to Jesus, when they wrote a book of the Bible, it was God speaking through them. That what they wrote was exactly what God wanted written. Even though he used their own personalities, their own upbringing, their own backgrounds. That God used them to convey his message so that when David spoke or David wrote, he was speaking by God. One last passage. It's again arguing with the, with the religious leaders. And notice he says here, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Again, these commandments in the Bible don't come from human beings. According to Jesus, they come from God. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother 
must surely die. But I say to you, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, and Corbin means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void, notice, the word of God by your tradition. One last passage to show, according to Jesus, this word is the word of God. So that it makes sense when he says here, your word, this word that came from you, it is truth. It doesn't meet some standard. It is the standard. It is true. Why is it true? Because according to Jesus, the Bible came from God. And so to, see, to summarize this, one scholar put it this way, Jesus, quote, made the voice of the law, made the voice of the Old Testament, the voice of the living God who is present in every command. Just a summary of those six scriptures very quickly are enough to show that according to Jesus, Jesus' view of the Bible that when it was, is that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Or to put it differently, Jesus held the Old Testament to be historically true, completely authoritative, and divinely inspired. To him, what Scripture said, God said. So ultimately, I believe the Bible is true. I believe the Bible can be trusted because Jesus said so. And like I said, I think he's an excellent authority. I think he's somebody that I want to be on his side of any argument. And so if it's his view that the Bible can be trusted, that the Bible is true, then it would be wise for me to be on his side of the argument. And really, if you reject that, you paint yourself into a corner like this guy. Because if you reject the idea that the Bible is true and can be trusted, well, then what you're saying is that Jesus is wrong and you're right. Again, I'm not sure that's a really wise way to go. You're stuck between Jesus is wrong and you're right, or Jesus is right and you are wrong. Not a good place to be, and you're painting yourself into a corner. I don't ever want to be on the other side of an argument of Jesus. So the first reason why you should trust the Bible is because Jesus had a really high view of Scripture, and you should trust him. Second reason you should trust the Bible is because of its consistent message. The Bible is not one book. The Bible is a compilation of 66 individual books written by around 40 authors on three continents, written in three languages over a period of of, of around 1,500 years. So we're talking about 15 to 1,600 years, this span, this long span of time that each of these individual books were written. And these were written by military generals and poet kings and priests and doctors and scholars and shepherds and fishermen. So you have this wide range of authors, from the very rich to the poor to the middle class, scholars, peasants. You've got kings and priests, religious, non You've got all of these different kinds of people, secular and religious people. You've got fishermen and, and priests there. Like you've got this wide range of people over thousands, hundreds of years, 1,600 years to, to be to be you know, in general, 1,600 years. Like it says, there are 40 authors, three continents, three languages. And yet, putting all of that together, there is one consistent message. God glorified in the salvation of sinners through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to take and have all of you two weeks from now write down a paragraph of maybe 10 lines of what happened in this service today, we would be all over the place. You'd be talking about, some, some of you would talk about the shirts, and some of you would talk about the lighting, and you would sing the songs, but you'd get the songs wrong. And then we'd have to figure it all out. Was it this song or that song? I know it was Chris Tomlin, maybe it wasn't Matt Redmond. Like, there'd be all kinds of differences between your accounts. 
But when we do this with the Bible, we put them all together. They don't contradict each other. They complement each other. And there's one consistent message. Over 1,600 years, God glorified in the salvations of sin, salvation of sinners through Christ. That's remarkable. That is absolutely astounding that this one book, 66 books put together into one book, all would have a consistent message, though there's all those authors, all those languages, different places on the map, different socioeconomic, all of those differences. How in the world does that happen? It happens because, like Jesus said, there's a supernatural author behind all of this. Hmm. And really, what is Jesus says it himself in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is them that talk about me. That he is the center of the entire scriptures. The Old Testament, he is concealed. The New Testament, he's revealed. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the New Testament, it's actualization. There he is. Like, this is what the whole book is about. How in the world did that happen? It wasn't like you've got some books written and somebody stood back and said, you know, it'd be really good if we had a, a, a book about this. And they're like, okay, well, I'll write that. It didn't happen like that. The other authors didn't know what was being written. It's not like there was this one place where we've got the Bible here and everybody looks at it and reads it. It wasn't like that at all. Different letters are being written at different times. And, but when it's all finally put together, there's this cohesive, unified whole over 1,600 years. How in the world does that happen? Policemen can't even get two people witnessing an accident to agree. How in the world did that happen? It happened because the scriptures are true and can be trusted. The third reason you should trust the Bible is because of archaeology's discoveries. The discoveries of archaeology have had an amazingly confirming effect. There's my archaeologist over there. One archaeologist, again a Jewish scholar, archaeologist, said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. The word controverted means to deny the truth of something. So there is no archaeological discovery that's ever denied the truth of something the scripture says. Here's another archaeologist. On the whole, however, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened the confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavating in Palestine. And so what I want to do with you right now is blaze through a bunch of archaeological discoveries that have been found to show you, like, these aren't just a bunch of quotes. Let me give you some actual archaeological discoveries to help you see this. So these are the Nuzi tablets. They date to about 1400 BC, and they confirm some of the customs described in Genesis. Next, you have the Tel Alamarna tablets, also date to about 1400 BC. These refer to the conquest of Canaan in, in, in the life of Joshua. Next, you have the Israel Stella of King Maranepta that dates to about 1229 BC. And this is a picture that I actually took at the Cairo Museum a year ago. And um, I wasn't supposed to do that. Um, public confession right now. Um, they, they tell you to give your camera when you go into the Cairo Museum so you don't take pictures, but they don't check cell phones, which are full of cameras now. And so I saw, I'm cruising through and I see this. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've seen that thing in books before. I can't believe this is actually, it was in this part of the, of the museum that was barely even being used. And I was saying to my, my guide and my translator, like, dude, stand over there. I need to take a picture of this really fast. So I like, took it out. It was a good enough picture. And I kept it because this is the, the only existing non-biblical reference to the Hebrew nation as Israel. 
the only existing non-biblical reference to that. And so even, I have another picture, it's not on the slides, of, of the explanation that says that. But this is an amazing find, dating all the way back to 1229 B.C., the period of the Judges, to say this. Here's another black obelisk of Shalmaneser. It's very common for people that don't believe the Bible to say things like, you know those kings in the Bible, They're, they weren't really real, they weren't really actual people, they're like King Arthur, you know, they just make up to be, like the, the, to be like the best of what we are, the best of what we hope to be in our nation. And that's a great idea until they find the name of the king you're denying on the side of some obelisk like this one. That doesn't help very much for people's theories against the Bible. Here's another one, the Moabite stone. It confirms the rebellion in 2 Kings 3. It mentions Yahweh and the house of David, but it mentions the house of David in 840 BC. So David lived about 1000 BC, and so what people did, so what people said was like, yeah, 840, it says the house of David, and that's no big deal, like, because there was about 100 years, and they made up David, and they made him like, oh, he's the best of what we want to be, and so there he is. And that's a great theory until they found that. That doesn't help much. Doesn't help a lot when the person you're denying they actually find more stuff about you, about him on a piece of rock. You know, it's like, dang it. My theory goes away now. That's bad. And so that's the Old Testament. Here's an archaeologist who puts it this way. There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial history of the Old Testament. Very common, like I said, for people to say, yeah, you know what, it's all made up, it's all like Narnia and Middle Earth, it's not really real, it's just, it's just moral stories to help you, you know, help you with your life and teach you good morals. And that's a great idea until they find the name of the guy you're denying or until they find the city that you've said never existed. There's actually an article, I wanted to bring it, but I couldn't find it, um, where there's a, um, there's, there's a um, what's the word, what's that thing called? There, there's the letter to the editor that they print, and it's by a scholar who says the Hittites never lived, they were, they, they were never a people that truly existed, and then like 20 pages later is the excavation of the Hittite city that proves that they actually existed. And so you have these things going on in biblical history all the time because people go to the Bible assuming it's false and saying, you gotta prove it's true. Well, archeology span comes along and goes, well, if you wanna play that game, go for it substantial over and over again confirmation that the Old Testament is true. How about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, every city in the book of Acts has been excavated and found. And then long ago, scholars used to say, you know what, that, that Pontius Pilate guy, he never really existed. He was, just, he was made up by the early church to be a bad guy, attach him to Rome because there's anti-Roman sentiment in the early Christians. And so we'll put all of that anti-Roman sentiment into one guy. And that was a really popular theory until 1961 when they found this stone that said that Pontius Pilate actually existed and was the governor prefect in Judea. Whoops. Not good. Actually, one of my professors in college used to say, every time the archaeologist turns his spade, another critic goes, oops. Because the Bible can be trusted. Because like Jesus said, your word is what? It's truth. Your word is truth. They give ample proof, archaeology does, that the Bible can be trusted. It can be trusted in what it affirms, even kings and, and cities and things like that are true. So the fourth reason you should trust the Bible is manuscript evidence. 
Now, if some of that was blazing through that, this is where it might get a little complicated, so I've created some things between last service and this service to kind of make it even more understandable. Now, follow me. A manuscript is either a small scrap of paper, you know, this, maybe this big, that has a little bit of writing on it that's a quote of a biblical passage, all the way to entire books of the Bible. So whether it's a little scrap or a whole book, it's called a manuscript, Okay. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament, the Old Testament is written between 1445 B.C., 430 B.C. So about a thousand year span of time that from Genesis to Malachi that the Old Testament is being written. And before 1946, our earliest complete Old Testament manuscript of all the books of the, of the Old Testament dated to 900 A.D., so you see the difference there is between 2,600 and 1,600 years between when the books were written and when our earliest manuscript was, 900 AD. So in, but even then, in the many hundreds of Old Testament manuscripts from this period, 900 AD, there were very few variant readings. Variant readings are readings of a text in one manuscript that differed from a reading in another text. So people are copying, and they make mistakes, and so then, and so then you've got different manuscripts, one with the mistake, one without the mistake, and then scholars compare those things. And so there are very few of those showing that the purity of these Old Testament manuscripts was due to scribes who took great care in the copy of the Old Testament. They said, we want to make this accurate, and notice this quote. It's from the Talmud, which is a second century Jewish writing that kind of shows the theology of Judaism after the first century. And he says, it's a son or a, 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 what do you call that? A mentor talking to a student. He says, my son, be careful because your work is the work of heaven, copying the scriptures. Should you omit even one letter, the whole world would be destroyed. That's a pretty high view on the, making sure that your copy is accurate. Well, in 1946, something happened. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Dead Sea Scrolls are all, encompass every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. So you've got, you've got 38 of the 39 books of the Old Testament, and they date to 168 B.C. to 233 A.D., so before our earliest manuscripts were 900 A.D., then this bumps them back a thousand years closer to the original writings. And the question is, okay, what happens when you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with our 900 A.D. texts? Well, there's one example from the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. If you've ever read Isaiah, you know it takes a long time. If you're reading three chapters a day, it takes you 22 days, almost the whole month. It takes a while. Like it says there, only three words differed in spelling between the 900 AD text and those that were a thousand years earlier. Three words. If I gave all of you a paragraph to copy down and we were to compare them all, I think we would have more differences than just three words. Again, something incredibly important has been happening with the Old Testament, or like I put it in that last note, God preserved his word over time. That's incredible. Now for the New Testament. Well, actually, let me show you this timeline. If that didn't make sense, here's the writing of the Old Testament, and then here is our earliest manuscripts, 930 AD. So you've got a time span of 2,600 years. 
2600 to 1600 year time span. Then they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that boosts everything from 930 AD, a thousand years closer to the originals. And that's what we're saying, that when we compared before 1946 our 900 AD texts to now the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found an, an astonishing amount of similarity. Like I said, three words in the book of Isaiah. Unbelievable. When it comes to the New Testament, here are some ancient documents that are close to the time of the writing of the New Testament. So you see, like, for instance, Plato's Republic. It was written in 400 BC. Our earliest copy is about 900 AD, a time gap of 1,300 years, and we have seven copies. Okay? So we've got some other ones there for you. And again, remember that all of this is going to be on the city. If you're like, I really want these details, you can get them on the city. The best document that, that is most like the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. If you read that in college, you're like, oh gosh, I wish they didn't find those. But <laughs> you, have the, you have the date written was about 850 BC. Our earliest copy is about 900 AD, so span of 1750 years. There are more existing copies than any other book than the New Testament, 643. So they can compare all these 643 copies to each other and determine like, okay, what was the original text? That's one of the things scholars do. It's called textual criticism, where they take all these manuscripts, little shards, whole books, put them all together to say, this was the original document. Well, how, I mean, is the, is the New Testament close to that? Is it, is it similar? 1,700 years, that's a long time. How do we know? There's the New Testament on the bottom. Written between 50 and 95 AD, our earliest fragment of the New Testament is 114 AD, a difference of 30 years. For a whole book of the Bible, a difference of 100 years. For an entire Bible, a difference of 225 years. Okay, so there's a very short time gap between the original and the earliest copies. So that's important. And another thing that's important is having a bunch of manuscripts. Well, you know, we've got seven for Plato, and that's really good. And we've got ten for Caesar's Gaelic Wars. That's pretty good. The New Testament kind of blows that away. 5,735 manuscripts as of 2003 that can be compared to determine what is the original text. And when you compare all of that, what happens when you compare all of that? Is it just like crazy amounts of disagreement so that there's really no possible way for us to have any clue what the Bible says? Well, we'll get to that question in a second. But before we do that, there's a picture of the oldest known manuscript fragment. And it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, where Jesus is, and Pilate are speaking to each other. Here's a picture of the oldest complete Bible, Codex Sinaiticus, 32580. So it has every book of the New Testament in that one. So when you compare all of these differences from in, the, in all of these 5,735 manuscripts, you put them all together, what are the amount of differences that scholars cannot determine with certainty whether or not it was in the original text? Is it like 20%? Is it like 50% of the New Testament? No, it's one one-thousandth part of the entire New Testament. One one-thousandth, what does that look like? That's a picture of the Greek New Testament in, in Romans chapter 12. And so one one-thousandth of the New Testament would be about one half or three quarters of a page. So it would be about that much of the New Testament where scholars are like, yeah, we're not sure. We're not sure if that belongs in the Bible or not. Well, you know, then someone's going to say, oh, yeah, you probably hide all those places in the Bible. You probably don't tell anybody where those differences are. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 16. 
And Mark chapter 16 is one of those places where scholars are not sure whether this belongs in the Bible or not. It's in your Bible, but scholars aren't sure whether or not it should be there. They leave it, you know, because it's important, you know, it's important just in case it does belong in the Bible. It's important to put it in there. But notice what your Bible says after verse 8. It either has a footnote, it has brackets. My Bible says this. Shh, don't tell anybody. We don't have any proof for this. It doesn't say that. It says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 21. So there's one passage, and it's got brackets, and it's saying, okay, this part we're not sure about. Turn to another one, John chapter 8. It's a very beloved passage in the New Testament. Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. But notice in chapter 8, really chapter 7, verse 53, again, my Bible has a little note, maybe yours has a footnote, and at the bottom it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. So any place in the Bible where scholars aren't sure, we're not like, hey, look the other way, there's nobody behind the curtain, you know, <laughs> we're just like, we're faking all this whole thing, look, a pterodactyl, so let's talk about something else. Like, it doesn't do that, it's like, there it is, it's very clear, like, here, is, here are the places where we're not sure how much of the New Testament is that. Let's take a look at these quotes here from guys way smarter than I am to help you see this. Two scholars, they say the New Testament, quote, has survived in a much purer form than any other great book. We just saw that. Over 99% pure variant readings of significance amount to less than one half of 1% corruption, none of which affect any basic Christian doctrine. The evidence for the in- integrity of the New Testament is beyond question. Another scholar put it this way. The Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. So when somebody says to you, like a friend of mine when I was in high school, the Bible's just like the telephone game. You know, it starts out, there they are. It's like the telephone game. You really can't know what the Bible said because it's been changed over time and there's just no way it started out and someone wrote it and then someone changed it and they changed that and they changed that and changed that all the way down to today. It's been translated hundreds of times. Like There's no possible way to know what the Bible actually said. Now you can just say, do you know anything about manuscripts? Do you know anything about the manuscript evidence for the New Testament? Do you even know what a manuscript is? Because we have all of those documents. We can compare all of the changes. We can compare all of the mistakes as the people wrote. And we can say, like, okay, we know why people make mistakes like that. Like, for, I mean, you probably never did this, but when I was in high school and I would copy someone's homework, another public confession, (laughs) there were times, like, when I was writing that I would actually copy the line I just wrote. Some of you are nodding because you've done that too. Well, when that shows up in a manuscript, people go, ding, we see that, we know exactly what that is, we know that's a mistake because we can compare it to others and we know they doubled that line. It's, it's mistakes like that, the people that when copying manuscripts make. Well, when you compare all of those things and you've got 0.001% of the New Testament that's, that scholars like, we're not sure, you can say with, very much, with a huge amount of confidence, I can trust this book. This book is trustworthy, extremely so we've got Jesus' high view of Scripture, 
We've got the consistent message. We've got archaeological discoveries. We've got manuscript evidence. And finally, we have prophetic fulfillment. We have prophecy actually fulfilled. God doesn't say, hey, listen to me because I said so. He says, listen to me because I will tell you things that will happen before they happen. I'm going to give you the future before it happens. And when I do that, you should listen to me. So now listen to these passages from Isaiah. I don't have them on the screen, but listen to these passages and listen to how God says you should listen to me because I can tell you the future. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The things I talked about in the past, they came to pass. And new things I'm now declaring to you before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Well, my glory I'm not going to give to another, and I'm going to show you I'm glorious by telling you the future before it happens. Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, quote, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare that and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. If you've got someone that wants to take me on, bring him over and let's talk. Let them, here's the test, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And then he says, fear not, don't be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare? Have I told you what's going to happen? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I don't know any. No other God can say, hey, here's the future and it's going to happen. One more passage, Isaiah 45. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who said this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God before me. How do you know God is God and and not an idol, not a false God? Because he says, watch this, I'll predict the future and it will happen. And it won't be like Edgar Cayce or Nostradamus, who are like these super vague stuff that you got, word kind of looks like Hitler, so it's, oh, it's Hitler he's talking about. Not like that at all. Notice how specific these prophecies are. It's the top one, Genesis 49, 10. The Messiah will be born in the line of Judah. Well, at that time, there's probably, I don't know, a million families on the earth, all with separate different lines. How in the world did God say that and then 1,450 years later, it happened? That's pretty specific. Or, but less than the line of Judah, how about the line of David, which is also in the line of Judah? A thousand years before it happened, God said the Messiah would be born to the line of David. Again, by that time, millions and millions of different lines of people. How, how could it be from Judah to David? Like, there, there were so many different families and uncles and all the way down in the line of Judah. How could it, he could pick that one? Israel, captivity predicted 900 years before it happened. Messiah born in the city of Bethlehem. There were probably thousands of cities in the ancient day. It wasn't like, you know, Micah is sitting there going, okay, I've got Jerusalem and Bethlehem. I'm not sure which one. I think I'm going to say Bethlehem. There were all kinds of cities all over the world at that time. There's, how in the world did he pick that one city? It wasn't a big city at all anyways. It was this little podunk town. Like, why would he choose that one? The Messiah would be crucified. I, Psalm chapter 12 and Isaiah 53 were written before crucifixion existed. 
Isaiah 44, that prophecy is amazing. When God calls Cyrus by name in that passage, it is 150 years before Cyrus was born. He calls him by name so that the Jews at that time brought the book of Isaiah to Cyrus and said, our God told us about you. And Cyrus was like, all right, then you can go back to your land. Like, (laughs) this is amazing, you know? Like, I mean, and, and if you've ever done any study on Daniel chapter 9, you know that that, that that passage predicts the very exact day that Jesus would come into Jerusalem and present himself as the Messiah on the donkey. The exact day. Daniel's written 539 B.C. Jesus does that in 30 A.D., a span of 570 years to the exact day. How in the world did Daniel know that? Because there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and what he says is true and you can trust it. There's just a very small smattering of the hundreds of prophecies that can be do that, 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 can, that we can do that with. And we're not talking again like Joseph Smith who never got a prophecy, right? Nostradamus, Edgar Cayce. Like we're not talking about, about, about these vague things. We're talking specific people, specific places, specific times. It's going to be 70 years and it's exactly 70 years. Like this is so specific and so exact. There's no possible way that people could think like, like you could like predict that. That'd be like, if we're talking... I don't know, the first one, 1450 B.C., you know, 1450 years ago. That's like, what is that, 660 A.D.? That'd be like somebody in 660 A.D. writing down going, hey, we've got this, there's going to be this church called Redemption Gateway. It's going to be on this street called Pecos. And, it's gonna, and they're going to be talking about why you should study the Bible on this date in history. And then somebody found that and was able to identify it and document it. And like, it's that specific is the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. How in the world does that happen? And if that does happen in the Bible hundreds of times, you should trust the Bible. Because it's true. And what Jesus said about it is true. Your word is truth. So that's a lot, I know. That's a lot for you to take in. And so again, the goal was not that you get every detail. The goal is that you felt the the, the overwhelmingness of the evidence in a short amount of time, 40 minutes, to understand that you should trust the Bible. And granted, there are other tests. There's one last test that's not in your notes. Um, Though I don't, it's not a strong test in my mind because it's, it's, it's more subjective than objective. But the Bible is the number one bestseller in world history. It's the first book printed on a printing press, translated in, in, into over 2,000 languages. There's no other book even close to that. This book has changed history. You can't talk about the history of hospitals and schools and, and relief organizations without talking about Christianity in the Bible. You can't talk about the history of music, the history of art, the history of language, the history of politics without touching on the impact the Bible has had on it. Nothing in, in, in the West, at, at, at least, has is, is, is been left untouched by the Bible's influence. And so that's the macro. How about the micro? We could stand up here and just give you a mic person after person saying, here's how the Bible has changed my life. So yeah, we've got these, these big picture ideas, manuscripts and consistency and all that, but then you've got your life. 
And that the message of the scriptures not only changed culture, but it's changed your life individually. It's changed your family. It's changed your history, your lineage. You had one ancestor 200 years ago, and they were the Christian. Then everything's filtered down to you today. The Bible can be trusted. It changes lives. It's changed history. And so when it comes to trust, for me, I think about, when I think about trust, I'm trying to think, like, what, what, what's a good illustration for trust? And what I came up with is camping. I don't know about you, but I'm not going camping with someone I don't trust. That's pretty safe to say. I mean, you, I don't know how to cook, so you better know how to cook, you know? If I don't trust that you know how to cook, I'm probably not going to go camping with you. Um, you better know how to set up tents and things like, because I don't really know. Camping for me is like, is there a hotel next to the campsite? I'm good with that. Like, I'd like to know those other things, but I just don't at this point in my life. So in order for me to go camping with you, I, I need to trust you. If you didn't notice already, when someone asks you, why should I trust the Bible? Remember Jesus camp. Remember Jesus Camp. It was the movie that I don't recommend, but every time I see that book, I think Reliability of the Bible. Remember, I see that movie, I think Reliability of the Bible. Because five reasons to trust the Bible. Why should you trust the Bible? Jesus had a high view of the Bible. It has a consistent message. Archaeological discoveries have been made to confirm it. Manuscript evidence confirms it. Fulfilled prophecy confirms it. That over and over again, the Bible has been confirmed that you can trust it. So that's my attempt to give you an acronym to remember it. If you're like, oh, that's too much words, here, I just put it in one, like one word each, you know, so that you can say, Jesus had a high view of the Bible, so I should too. There's consistency to the message, archaeology, manuscripts, prophecy, all point to the fact that I should trust the Bible. If you're interested in going deeper on this, here's one book that I recommend to you. Norman Geisler and William Nix, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible, has, answers a lot of the questions that skeptics throw at you, whether that skeptic is on the outside of you or whether that skeptic is on the inside of you, going, what about this, what about that? This book is amazing for that. And if you're still skeptical after all of that, still holding on to your doubts, still holding on to your questions, there's one passage that I want you to hear me read to you. It's 1 it's Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And it goes like this. The natural man, the person who's not a Christian, the person who doesn't have God's spirit living within them, the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. He cannot because they are spiritually appraised. That my prayer for you in this, that, that, that really after all of this, none of this evidence will truly convince anyone to submit to Christ. It may review your excuses, but it cannot save you. Only God's Spirit can do that. Only God's Spirit can open your eyes and help you see that this book is a lot different than they say it is on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. That the things that they're saying about this book are lies. And they're, they're lies not just because those people are biased. They're lies because this book has actual evidence that says what you're saying is not true. History Channel aside, though, really it's about you personally. Do you trust the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? You should trust the Bible. There's enough evidence for it. But that when all that evidence is aside, the issue becomes your heart. Am I going to trust it? Am I going to submit to it? There is every reason in the world. The reasons to do so are overwhelming. So as we pray now, 
my prayer is that you will do that, that you will trust the scriptures. Let's pray. God, I do thank you very much for giving us a word that can be trusted. I'm so grateful that we're not left to cross our fingers. Gosh, well, you know, I know there's lots of bad evidence for it, but I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope it's true. Like, we don't have to do that. Jesus says your word is truth, and all the evidence points to that. God, you've been so good to us to grant us that gift. You've been so good to us to reveal yourself to us in your word. So God, I, I just beg you that you allow this information, which I know is a flood. Pray that you would allow this information to be at home in our hearts, that you, you'd allow us to remember this acronym and that you would allow us to take the, the faith that this acronym encourages and help us to not be silent when that uncle says stuff at Thanksgiving or when that coworker says something to, 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 to get a rise out of us. God, give us answers. Allow us to allow a message like this to, to help us make Christianity attractive to those who are questioning it, to show that, no, there are answers. There is evidence. This is true. And God, I pray that you would use a message like this to remove doubt, to remove questions and to help us see that your son is not just the consistent message of the Bible, he is the answer to our deepest problems. He is the savior from sin. He is the savior of the world. He is the Lord of eternity. And that we can entrust our lives to him who is faithful and true to take care of us and to see us through this life and to bring us safely home in the next. So God, do this please for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Do you guys appreciate that? You appreciate John? Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, I get pretty excited um, about the fact that we don't have to fear questions as followers of Christ. Um, but, the, but, I mean, if it's true, there's a good answer. And uh, as we've seen today, there's an overwhelming evidence that we can trust God, we can trust His Word. You know, we study the Word of God so that we can know the God of the Word, and uh, that God has a name, and He came into human history 2,000 years ago, took on flesh, was born in Bethlehem, as we just read. He, he lived a perfect life, um, and then He died. He was crucified, as, as was predicted, as He had written through uh, the prophets years and years and years before, and that, that God, that man, was named Jesus. And he's the reason that we gather. He's the reason that we celebrate. And he's the reason for what we're about to do now. Uh, we're going to take communion together as a body of believers. And if you would affirm the truth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he lived the life that you should have lived before God, and that he died in your place to take the penalty for the sins that you've committed, if you believe that that is true and you've put your hope and your trust in him uh, because of what the Scripture says, uh, then we want to invite you to take communion with us this morning. The communion elements are...